Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 347, Aggressive Diplomacy. This show is ad-free due to member support, and as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts, and you can get instant access to all the members' extras by signing up for membership at thebritishhistorypodcast.com for about the price of a latte per month. And thank you very much to Linda, Corey, and Dean for signing up already. What we call history was, at one point, just current events. And world affairs never happen in a vacuum. It's never just one thing happening after another. It's a whole mesh of events that, while they might happen in their own sequences that look very much like one thing happening after another, they're actually interwoven with a massive web of other events, some seen and some unseen, that affect the outcomes of whatever was happening currently and what could happen in the future. And so, as a consequence, leaders are almost always juggling multiple matters at the same time. Or, at least, if they're a good leader, they should be. Because the world keeps turning, and a lot of things need to be managed. Lots and lots of things. And I feel like after the last three or four months, most of us have learned this the hard way. And the fact is that the 1020s were a bit like the 2020s, where everything feels like it's happening all at once. And for King Canute... He was dealing with at least one war, not to mention scheming advisors, a treasonous son, very likely one or two other wars. And on top of all of that, Canute was also staring down the barrel of a succession crisis in the Holy Roman Empire. You see, Emperor Henry II, the great-great-grandson of Otto the Great, had died in 1024, which was just one year before the rebellion in Scandinavia kicked off. And he had died childless. As a consequence, European stability was tilting enough to make anyone nervous. And so to provide a little continuity, Henry's widow took the helm of the empire as regent. But an empire needs an emperor. So this was only a temporary solution while the major figures of the empire gathered to elect their next leader. And among the contenders was another of Otto's great-great-grandchildren, a man in his mid-thirties named Conrad. Now, we don't have any details on what Canute's opinion on Conrad or his potential rise to power was, but some scholars have posited that he was probably opposed to Conrad becoming emperor, because Conrad had an antagonistic relationship with the P.S. dynasty of Poland, which was Canute's mother's dynasty. So should Conrad rise to power, there would be a possibility that the two nations might once again go to war. And that would put Canute in a position of having to take sides. And no one wants to choose between family or war with one of Europe's superpowers. So he was probably sitting on pins and needles. And then, in late 1024, that risk became even more likely when Conrad was elected as king of Germany. And so Canute, likely realizing that he had enough problems on his hands without adding war with Germany to the list appears to have immediately pivoted and tried to strike up a friendship with Conrad. Now, making friends between two neighbors when you're both medieval kings wasn't as simple as inviting them over for a cookout. This was delicate diplomatic work, and part of this process appears to have involved discussions about a future marriage between Canute's daughter, Gunhild, and Conrad's son, Henry. Records also suggest that Canute was likely traveling to certain key German cities to visit with Conrad. 
So Knut seems to have been really putting his heart into this, which was smart diplomacy. But the truth is that both men had an incentive to make this friendship work. With the number of problems that Knut had, the last thing he needed was to get drawn into another conflict. But at the same time, given Denmark's shared border with the Holy Roman Empire and the fact that Knut was becoming something of a superpower himself, if Knut did get dragged into war, he could create a lot of problems for Conrad as well. The fact was that war across the Danish-German border was in no one's interest. So my guess is that 1024 and early 1025 were filled with a lot of diplomacy. Like, a lot, a lot. But then, in 1025, all hell broke loose for Canute up in Denmark. And so he had to put these delicate matters on hold and head north to deal with a few things. Like, you know, that Danish rebellion that was led by his brother-in-law Jarl Ulf and his own son, Hartha Canute. And as we talked about last week, he ended up driving out the combined Norse-Swedish invasion fleet and held them off at the Battle of Helgea, which included the Norse throwing an entire river at his army. And despite suffering enormous losses, he drove King Anund back into Sweden, where Anund set aside his military ambitions, and he even forced King Olaf and the Norse army to abandon their ships and walk overland back to their homes. So all things considered, that had been a pretty good year for Canute, but there's no rest for the wicked. And what Canute needed to do is get back to securing a broader European peace with Conrad II, not to mention dealing with whatever problems were troubling England's borders which it seems involved Scotland. But apparently, Canute wasn't able to get directly to that work because he was delayed. According to the Heimskringla, and corroborated in the Roskilded Chronicon, we're told that following the victory over the Norse and Swedes, King Canute didn't return to England, nor did he go to the court of King Conrad. No, he had a different diplomatic issue to handle. You see, that rebel... Jarl Ulf had invited the king to feast with him at Roskilde. And honor and decorum demanded that the king had to go, especially since Jarl Ulf was his brother-in-law. But the fact was, this was about the last thing that Canute wanted to do. He had bigger fish to fry for one, but more than that, Jarl Ulf had turned his own son against him, and he could have gotten them all killed. And that wasn't exactly something that could be resolved with a little small talk over a cup of mead. But Jarl Ulf, who was eager to ingratiate himself with his liege and clearly didn't know how to read a room, sent the invitation anyway. And so, the king arrived. And fair play to Ulf here. The Jarl really did his best. He was a cheerful host. He made sure that the feast was well provisioned. He did all the things that a good host should do. But King Canute was unimpressed. Ulf tried to engage the king in conversation, and the king remained silent. When Ulf brought up subjects that he knew would interest the king, Canute would sullenly give short responses, if he even responded at all. It was awkward, and I imagine that both men were getting increasingly frustrated. Ulf was there trying to patch things up, and Canute was blocking him at every turn, and no one likes to be rejected. But on the opposite side, Canute pretty clearly wanted to be left alone. And sometimes what a conflict needs most is time for everyone to cool down. But Ulf kept acting like a guilty ex rather than doing the smart thing and giving the king a chance to relax and reconcile on his own terms. 
He just kept forcing the issue. So the tension in the room kept rising. And eventually, Ulf asked the king to join him in a game of chess. And Canute, probably tired of rejecting this guy, agreed. So Ulf brought out the board, set it up, and they began to play. And we're told that Ulf approached chess the same way that he did with most things in his life. He was quick and bold. And in particular, we're told that he was bold and daring, not just in his style of play, but also in how he spoke. And translating from medieval understatement, that meant that Ulf was winning and acting like an asshole about it. At one point, Ulf took one of Knut's knights, and the king grabbed the piece and returned it to the board. And then he ordered Ulf to make another move, a different move. Knut was reminding Ulf that gamer no, he was still king. And Ulf, clearly missing the message, flipped the game table over and stormed off. And as the Jarl marched off in a tizzy, Knut laughed and called him a coward for running off. Ulf, still misreading the whole scene, shouted back that Knut would have had to run much farther if he had not saved his royal butt at the Holy River. And then the Jarl flounced right out of the room. And here's the thing, if you want a great way to lose friends, just try trash-talking and flipping over board games. It'll work every time. So that was a bad plan right from the start, but Ulf wasn't playing with a friend here. He was playing with a Viking king. A Viking king who was now seated amidst a bunch of fallen chess pieces and, I assume, a room full of nobles who'd just seen him called out publicly by his own rebellious Jarl. This would need a response. But Canute played it cool. He stayed where he was at. He enjoyed the feast for a while. He acted like it was no big deal. And later, he retired to his bedchambers. The next morning, while he was getting dressed, the king summoned one of his companions and gave him an order. Find Jarl Ulf and kill him. Then he waited. And after a time, the companion returned but he told Canute that Jarl Ulf still lived. It turned out that the trash-talking Jarl realized that he'd overplayed his hand, and so he was now hiding in the nearby church of St. Luke's. And Canute's companion, being a Christian, just didn't feel right committing murder in a church. But Canute wasn't going to let this slide. Ulf had flown a flag of rebellion against him. He caused all manner of problems with Canute's home life, and then to top it off, this guy was a total he had to go. But that being said, it wasn't clear how long Ulf was going to hide out in the church. And Canute had things he needed to do. But thankfully, this was Denmark. And not everyone was going to take issue with killing someone in a church. And Canute's bodyguard, a man named Ivor the White, followed the old ways. So Canute asked him to take care of his Ulf problem. And Ivor, not concerned about Christian taboos, headed straight to the church where the Jarl was hiding, walked up to Ulf, and drove his sword right through his chest. Shortly thereafter, Ivor returned to Canute and handed the still-bloodied sword over to the king. Problem solved. And as for the monks of the church, well, for their part, they totally got the heebie-jeebies over this whole affair, and they locked the church up tight until the king came along and forced them to reopen it. Which they did, of course, because, well, that's the only reasonable option when you're dealing with a guy who's sending assassins into churches over board games. 
Now, there's one thing that I should add to this story. The scribes of the Roskilde Chronicon add one more detail to it. They tell us that the origin of this conflict had begun long before Ulf and Harthacanute's rebellion, and long before the trash-talking over a game of chess had turned violent. According to the Chronicon, and only the Chronicon, Knut had been livid with Ulf ever since the Jarl had married his sister, Estrid, and became his brother-in-law. You see, the Chronicon tells us that that marriage wasn't something that the king approved of. And actually, Ulf eloped with Estrid against his wishes, and it angered the king so much that he exiled both of them for a time. And only after that do we get the rebellion, the chess, and the sudden interest in the ecclesiastical implications of murdering someone in a church. But again, only the Chronicon says this, so it should be taken with a fair amount of salt. But it is possible that it was true, or at least true in part. Unfortunately, we'll never know for sure. Now, as you recall, Ulf wasn't the only rebel in his family. He had a brother, Eglaf, who had also joined him in his rebellion. But it seems like Eglaf managed to keep his head down during all of this, because later Welsh chronicles indicate that Eglaf was in England after the conflict. So his part in the rebellion must have been forgiven. Maybe he got a pass because he didn't elope with anyone, or maybe he wasn't the trash talker that his brother was. It's hard to say for sure. But needless to say, this had been an incredibly eventful year. And yet, the Chronicle only gives us two lines about it. And I guess that does make sense if you consider what the Chronicle is and what the goal of the scribes was. I mean, while Canute had survived the war, it had come at a heavy price. And it can't be denied that his grip on the kingdoms was a little loose. Moreover, this particular series of events didn't exactly make him look imperial. It made him look like a struggling usurper, and Canute wanted to look imperial. And that might explain why, following those whopping two sentences on the Scandinavian insurrection, the chronicle gets even more tight-lipped. The scribes tell us that in the following year of 1026, Bishop Elfrich went on a trip to Rome, which, you know, good for him. Self-care is important, but that's it. That's all it tells us. And then the scribes go silent for two years. So nothing about the flotilla in the Baltic, the chess fiasco, the assassination, none of that is mentioned. Furthermore, we're looking at a total of three years in which the scribes completely fail to mention anything about the political situation in Canute's burgeoning empire. And that makes me think, that things were a bit rough for Canute. Thankfully, though, the Chronicle isn't our only source for what was happening in the world. And when we look at other sources, things weren't looking good, even with Ulf out of the way. Following that qualified victory, Canute needed to return to England. Because remember, England was possibly at war with Scotland during this period. And it wasn't like England had a reputation for stability anyway. So either in late 1025 or at some point in 1026, Knut set sail for England. It was time to get back to work stabilizing his rebellious southern kingdom, not to mention getting back to the important work of international relations. But when it rains, it pours. And in August of 1026, Duke Richard II of Normandy died. Now, as you might remember, Duke Richard was the brother of Queen Emma which meant that he was Canute's brother-in-law 
And that marital link was part of what had been providing Canute and England with a modicum of stability. I mean, sure, all hell might be breaking loose in Scandinavia, and who knows what was going on with the Welsh and the Scots, but at least the English Channel was secure. And at least Canute didn't have to worry about war with Normandy. Well, with the death of Duke Richard II, that pillar of Canute's power base, his close bonds with the House of Normandy, just got chucked out the window. The Duke's son, who was now Duke Richard III of Normandy, took control of the duchy. And while he was Canute's nephew-in-law, that link was, well, it was a bit tenuous. And then things got worse. New Duke Richard III's brother, Robert, wasn't pleased with how things were shaking out. Richard got a duchy, and all Robert got was land in Hemois. And that wasn't enough. So Robert kicked up a rebellion, and he laid siege to Falaise. Normandy was now locked in a civil war. Nobles began to choose sides in the conflict, and it got so bad that even the Archbishop of Rouen, who was the uncle for both Richard and Robert, ended up taking sides, and he joined with Duke Richard III, something that infuriated Robert. So family was fighting family, barons were fighting barons, and the infighting threatened to tear Normandy apart. And when faced with such extreme instability and the ever-present threat of death should one side or the other gain power, many lesser nobles chose to leave the duchy altogether. And that left a power vacuum in the region. And as a consequence, an entirely new circle of aristocrats rose to power in Normandy. Then, in the midst of this political upheaval, Robert was captured by the forces of Duke Richard III. And after holding him for some time... Richard eventually decided to make peace with his brother. The Civil War had cost the duchy a lot, and the conflict needed to be peacefully brought to an end if they were ever going to get Normandy back on track. And for his part, Robert also wanted to bring this to an end. So his army was disbanded, and he made an oath to his brother that he would be forever faithful. And on the strength of that oath, Robert was released, and Duke Richard III disbanded his army and returned to Rouen and to normalcy. But then Duke Richard III died, suddenly, conveniently, and he died under dubious circumstances, which were made even worse when Robert immediately seized the duchy and became Duke Robert I of Normandy. And as you might imagine, when that happened, people were pretty suspicious, like right away. And I'm sure it didn't help that the civil war that Robert had been waging had left the duchy already deeply unstable and distrustful. Moreover, Robert really didn't look good when he immediately moved against his uncle, the Archbishop of Rouen, and the two became locked in a violent power struggle. Church lands were getting seized, church officials were facing wild recriminations, and eventually this got so bad that Duke Richard forced the Archbishop into exile. And in response... The Archbishop excommunicated Robert and all of Normandy just for good measure. Duke Robert I was a whole thing. And you can imagine Canute staring at all of this in shock. Rather than being a stable, reliable partner who could help Canute maintain his grip on multiple crowns, instead, Normandy was gleefully setting itself on fire and there were no signs that this madness was going to stop anytime soon. So Canute 
had just lost yet another noble ally that he could turn to for support should things go sour. And that probably made Conrad look even more critical to the health and stability of Canute's burgeoning empire. So the king directed his attentions there, towards Conrad's impending coronation in Rome, which was due to take place in Easter of 1027. And once again, Canute was leaving England in Godwin's care. Though this time, he also left behind Emma, who was also wielding a great deal of power on the island. And we're told in a letter from Canute himself that he made the journey to Rome for the coronation and that upon his arrival, he was received with much honor and a great many gifts from the leading men of Europe. And Canute tells us that Conrad in particular lavished gifts and attention upon him. Now, we have a great deal more detail about Conrad's trip to Rome, and we know that he arrived on March 22nd and stayed for about two and a half weeks. And given the closeness of the two men, it's quite possible that Canute would have been with him for much of that time. Conrad II's biographer wrote that Canute was one of the rulers who was chosen to act as witness for the imperial benediction by the Pope. And this would have been a moment of incredible importance for Canute, as it would have demonstrated that he was one of the major figures in European politics. Moreover, this was a key alliance that he needed. And Canute's presence here actually makes a lot of sense. He was at the height of his economic and military power during this period, so he actually would have made an attractive ally for Conrad, especially considering their shared borders. And it's notable that Canute was referred to as the King of England, Denmark, Norway, and some of the Swedes, which might indicate that he had claimed Norway's throne by the time he reached Rome, or at least he claimed the right to have it. But at the very least, it seems that what we're seeing here are two major powers in Europe, the Holy Roman Emperor and a rising Scandinavian king on the verge of securing an empire of his own, developing diplomatic ties that would benefit them both. And Canute used this diplomatic relationship to secure impressive gains for his people. He got the emperor and the pope to guarantee the safety of his people as they traveled the continent, and to waive or discount any tolls that they might incur. Essentially, the king negotiated a Euro passport for the Danes and the English. And this was in line with Canute's other efforts. For example, he'd also been working on standardizing the coinage between Denmark and England and adjusting the weight and purity so that it would match the coinage of the Byzantine Empire, which of course was one of the major trading powers in the known world. And he did such a good job with this that the English currency began to operate as the main coin of trade within Europe, essentially becoming an early euro. So what I'm saying here is that Canute's presence at the imperial coronation and his influence at that gathering wasn't an accident. He was operating as an imperial power, and he was being treated as one as well. Moreover, we have records that speak of Canute's presence in two important cities in the Holy Roman Empire, Cologne and Liege. And because of this, we can assume that not only were Canute and Conrad close at this coronation, but we can also assume that their closeness continued and that Canute was deliberately maintaining that relationship by making trips to imperial possessions in the later years of his reign. This relationship was critical both for the stability of his developing empire and also for the bolstering of his imperial status. But the world keeps turning. And being king of so many territories 
meant that Canute had a lot of responsibilities. So shortly after the coronation, the king prepared to return to Denmark. And Canute tells us that the purpose of this trip was to, quote, arrange peace and a firm treaty with the Council of All the Danes, with those races and peoples who would have deprived us of life and rule if they could, end quote. So apparently, despite the bloodbath at the Helge River, there were still some people in Scandinavia who were looking to make a ruckus. So Canute readied his ships for their journey north. And meanwhile, in Normandy, Duke Robert I had taken a concubine. She was a tanner's daughter that he'd fallen for, and she was named Herleva. And right at about this time, their son was born. They named him William. You should see me in a crowd. I'm gonna run this nothing if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at the British History Podcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. You should see me in a crowd. Your silence is my favorite sound. Watch me make a